0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, and now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast, and it's only because of you, the listeners if you'd like us to stick around another seven years and there's a few simple things you can do that would really really help us out i would endlessly appreciate if you would number one share our episodes with your friends number two Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at AL Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy and of course our guests. And number three, leave us reviews and five star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at Eyal at URM.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot .com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, Answer Me aol. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM Podcast. My guest today is Grammy-nominated mixer, engineer-producer, Jeff Swan, who's worked with everyone from Ed Sheeran, Charlie XCX, Youngblood, and many, many more. Let's get into this. Here goes. Jeff Swan, welcome to the URM Podcast.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for being here. I have something that I've always wondered about in uh, pop production. There's a lot of people... Involved in pop production. So coming from the metal world where it's, you know, there's lots of, I'd say the majority of metal productions are Lone Wolf style or a duo where there's the, the main person that was hired and then that person's assistant. Or there's that duo plus the mixer who is maybe a Lone Wolf or maybe mixer plus assistant. But when it's usually one, two, three, four, five people total on the entire production team whereas in pop from what i've seen there's a lot more people involved and so what i'm wondering is so when you see people's pop credits what does that mean because i see i've seen some people who list that they've worked with certain artists and i know they have i know it's true but it's like assistant engineer or you know not the not the role that you would think from looking at their instagram so i'm wondering is how do you interpret pop credits correctly
1: it's very different from project to project but i think there's certainly in in pop music you have a lot more stakeholders like definitely from right from the writing to the production to usually you know if you if it's an album i mean there can be like four or five different mixes on it usually one mastering engineer but like when you're when you're talking about like even just one song there can be multiple people involved and multiple people with different opinions but i tend to find like for the most part when i'm working with specific artists doing you know like mixing the bulk of an album or like mixing a song that's got several producers on it there will generally be like a figurehead or somebody that's kind of like almost executive producing that mm-hmm. that you can lean on for direction i guess
0: someone has to be charting the course
1: Absolutely. It becomes like rudderless if you if you haven't got that. And certainly I think like pop mixing, you know, which is really the, the world that I see more than anything else is you're really about enhancing a collective vision rather than, you know, like you're not, you're not trying to break down what you've been given and rebuild it in a completely different form. Sometimes you do, but for the most part, it's about like, what, where, where are people trying to go with this? Like, like how, what can I bring to the table to give them more of that? you know, and take it to the next step, you know, whether that's five, 10% more, or, you know, a little bit more than that, if you can, if, if there's room to add it in. Um, but generally speaking, you have, you you do have to have somebody that spearheads the production of the record. And sometimes it's the artist, you know, it, it all varies from project to project. So yeah, I mean, roles, when you look at look at what somebody does in terms of a credit situation, I mean, it's, it's always, there are assistant engineers that do a lot more than the assist. And then there's also like engineers that don't really do that much engineering, if that makes sense. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. So just take it with a grain of salt?
1: I mean, like, I, I don't think there's like a, there, there's not a hard and fast rule. I think, I think people that tend to work in and build credits within a role, they do that because they've shown their ability to do that job well and so they get rehired and reused again and you build relationships with people and it might be a relationship with a producer where you become their go-to person for for engineering purposes or it might be you know you become somebody's go-to mixer or you know whatever your role may be it's really about building a name for yourself and then also if you're doing you know if you're doing that assistant role and you're doing more than that That assistant role, and and you're consistently doing that. Is how do you step out of that and then, you know, maybe get the credit that you should be getting, or how do you negotiate that, like that next step? I guess.
0: Yeah. How do you go about balancing the needs and expectations of a big team, or do you usually just interface with one? main person
1: generally what i always like to do is be in touch with that figurehead that we were talking about a second ago like being in touch with the the producer or the or the artist directly if they're very invested in the mixing process or you know and or sometimes it's a combination of being involved with producer a and r management and involved with everyone but generally what i tend to find is almost like hit one person's expectations at a time to an extent like so generally speaking if you've got if, you, if you've got a project where an artist is, you know, artists have busy lives in the pop world, definitely, you know, they're touring relentlessly, they're doing promo, like all artists, I think in all genres are busy, they're busy being artists. So a producer can often be, you know, a great conduit for communicating what they want from a mix or what mm-hmm. they're hearing is wrong with it, and translating it into language that is, you know, maybe a, a bit easier to understand or slightly more palatable, like what to to my ears. Just and, and explain to explain to me what they want. So I quite often, you know, deal with deal with getting it right for the producer and the artist first, and then you know, if there are there's a label involved and management, and there's opinions coming from that side as well. Then once we got to a point where we're we're feeling good about a record, it's then about diving in and letting the next set of opinions come in, I guess. It's like, that's an ideal situation. It doesn't always work like that. If you can tackle it, rather than having conflicting opinions coming at you via notes, you know, like multiple notes from multiple people, that can make it very difficult. But to be honest with you, most people I work with are really good at vetting that before it ever gets to me. I think, and again, that's having that that person that, that can kind of lead the charge so to speak, and go, okay, well, I've got all these notes from everyone. I've collected what everyone's saying, and this is what we need to pass on to Jeff to to address, I
0: guess. I mean, that's what I tell mixers to do when they're dealing with bands as far as mix notes is tell them to compile them and 100%. communicate yeah. communicate with only one person. No texts in the middle of the night. Just if it doesn't go through that one person, it doesn't count. So that one person speaks for the group as a whole
1: and when you can can implement that or when it's implemented for you it, it is always a smoother process and i think but i think that the nature of working with bands you know like a traditional band setup is that everyone is coming at it from both a unified perspective and also an individual standpoint so you know there's i i think i think once you're at a point the the, the best situation with any mix is to get it Where everyone's feeling good about it. And really what you're doing is is from that point onwards, experimenting with trying other people's wishes. You know, like it doesn't matter if you get to like, if you get to mix six and everyone's happy with it, like, you know, you've gone and you've you've done any major overhauls, you've done any minor overhauls, and then suddenly somebody wants the guitars, you know, three dBs louder in this section, and somebody wants to try something that other people don't agree with. Well, you know, for the time it takes to run a parcel, like that why deny people the ability to hear it? You know, that's that's my philosophy on
0: it anyway. You've got the hard part out of the way.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and also, I'm always a little bit suspicious when things get signed off on Ref1. I'm like, really? Like, you know, like you,
0: you're 100% done? That, like... that used to stress me out.
1: It kind of stresses me out. I'm happy that people like things, but I'm also like, well, you know, is this going to be something that, you know, are we, we're definitely 100% done? Or is this going to be something that we park for a month and then suddenly it's like, oh...
0: Yeah, am I going to hear about this six months later? Th- yeah. <laughs> that's, my fear, my, when I was mixing, my fear was always, there were so, some of the, the locals never did this, but the, some of the sign bands did this. Not all, only a few, but it, it only happened a few times where we'd get like, that's great on mix one. It's like, what do you mean, that's great? Do you have any notes? No, it's awesome. You sure? because I knew it wasn't done, uh, and then those times have come back to bite me in the ass. It's like good for a first mix, and they're happy with that, but there were new bands, and they hadn't had the experience of having their music mixed professionally, so they didn't really understand the process of mixed notes. So, you know, then six months later, they realize that they don't like it that's not a good time for them to realize it
1: no it, it's just not but also I think that's one of the what, it's one of the joys and kind of the curses of working with new artists like and you know certainly artists at a local level might like my experience of doing that was very much like they would often be wowed by the the results they would get because they didn't maybe never heard themselves recorded yes. before and certainly never heard themselves recorded with um, the, the kind of touching up that's that there was that is possible but then also you would you'd either get oh you know oh my god this is amazing like this is like we're so fucking happy we don't, you know, we're, we're done, this is great. And then equal, on an equal footing, you'd also get, like I played it to my mate from college that's doing a production course and he says, like, this is not right with it. And, that's, <laughs> and then you'd be like, okay, well, you know, we can we can do your mate from college's notes, that's that's fine if you if you want to do that. And But like often it would be like, it would generally be, you know, having an opinion for opinion's sake, I guess.
0: Man, once a producer I used to work with, he did not do spec deals and did not work with unsigned in general. But there was this one unsigned band that had some friends of mine in it that they're very, very talented. I really felt like they needed a shot, so I talked my partner into us doing two songs on spec and getting them signed. And so we gave them a very basic one pager. Basically, you do this with us, you get signed from it, we get the right of refusal or you buy this out, like the basics. There's nothing crazy in it, but uh, one of them's roommates was a law student and um, that person started marking it up. And basically we got back a one page simple agreement where literally every sentence had red line under it. It never got done.
1: In, in those instances, it's like you, you sometimes you hear something and you think, this is too good not to work with. And you go, well, how can I protect myself, but also offer somebody an opportunity? And then mechanics somewhere come into play and it just messes it up for everyone. Because, you know, in, th- in that instance, you know, it's certainly with bands and artists that are really just starting out, like whatever kind of leg up they can get, it's a good thing and if it's like and a basic like you know one page document that just protects your interests and explains to them how it works shouldn't be something that goes through that that kind of intense
0: vetting It wasn't like some 60 page deal
1: yeah you, like you 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 know you weren't like grabbing their image rights and no. like saying you' didn't know or anything like that so yeah it's, no we were it's, just
0: trying to help them out we didn't formally like walk on the project we just we saw the the markup and we're like this is going to be more of a pain in the ass than it's worth. And just, that was it. It was over. Man, I wonder how many local bands have shot themselves in the foot doing that sort of thing. I've heard of quite a few over the years who were, quote unquote, holding out for the right deal and turned down all kinds of deals. And you hear about, like, the very few that have succeeded from that. But I think, by and large, that is a stupid thing to do.
1: But I'm from very small town like or just outside i'm like from the countryside so that there's, there was a small music scene when i was growing up in this town and there was a lot of like talented people and talented bands but they were there was a lot more like emulation than innovation you know like there was a lot of like sounding like other people rather than like pushing forward and doing something new and the bands that really like stood out and were doing something different there has to be like a basis of understanding of like what you're like what you're trying to achieve and i think like i mean i'm talking about like the early 2000s like late 90s like the there wasn't the plethora of information there is today about like you know different deals and different opportunities you couldn't there there wasn't there wasn't the resources there are available um and i think that like at that time everyone was just like trying to play live and and get in front of you know industry people where possible to you know go and play shows in london and try and and try and showcase what they could do to for somebody to give them the financial backing to take things to the next stage whatever that may be whereas i think now people are are more savvy which is a good thing Very good but thing. also i think the knock-on effect of that is sometimes people are too savvy in a way like and on the flip side of that also like naive like a record deal is not necessarily the way to go for a lot of bands like you don't need to do it so like if you're a certain type of artist why would you do that like why build yourself to a point where like you're the person calling the shots not like look for somebody else to help you take it to the next level take it to the next level yourself and then negotiate the best option for yourself but like certainly like shopping yourself around for a deal if you haven't got that platform in place is a very difficult thing to do
0: totally you know i do think it obviously being savvy is really really important But what you're saying about being too savvy is, uh, I think it's a lot like in mixing, where people, I've noticed in the URM community, will get too hung up on little things, and that prevents them from moving forward. I've noticed when people are too savvy, sometimes they overthink these, these insignificant little details that don't matter, like, in a contract or, you know, the timing of every single last little thing instead of just staying consistent and putting out more and more and more. Like, I feel like I see a lot of mixers in um, in URM, like when we give them the Now the Mix tracks, like, we're giving the actual tracks that came into us from the mixer. So, real sessions in real life, they all have mistakes in them. There's always going to be something weird, no matter who's producing or mixing. Like if humans did it, there's going to be human error. It's without a doubt, like always. And then it's your job as a mixer or, you know, the mix assistant, whoever to solve those problems, or there's always going to be something. And I've noticed that there's a level of student who hold themselves back because they see those problems as there's something wrong with the files as opposed to no this is part of it you need to solve these problems
1: yeah and I can I can definitely relate to that I still challenge myself and remind myself today about that like when something comes in and I'm like oh this would be so much better if it just wasn't like this or why did they do it like that but that's that that's part of the production so you've got to you've got to work with it you know like and you've and you've also got to like like you say like not focus on the minutiae it's about broad strokes and the bigger picture so if there's something that's like not right with the file in your opinion if you can fix it fix it and see if it changes the feel of the track it depends on what it is like something you know something that's something that the that happens more often than not, I find is that like you might get a you might get a, a vocal in that's like not been recorded in a particularly great environment, but you clean it up too much. You make it you you lose like the the room ambience that's not necessarily there intentionally, but it's part of the vibe and part of the sound. It's like, okay, well the vocal is technically better, but it doesn't feel as good. I think that's something that is a learning process. Like with, with mixing and producing it as well, you just kind of feel that out as your experience grows. Like you kind of have to make that mistake to realize that it is a mistake, if that makes sense. Because, you, you know, your intentions are good by like cleaning that vocal up, but it might not necessarily benefit the song. Does, does that make sense?
0: Yeah, and then the sunk time fallacy kicks in where someone will feel like, well, I did the work, so yeah, I can't just undo it. I put the time in.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, yeah, yeah I've I've spent I spent three hours doing this. What a yeah. I mean, yeah. Just that's um and that that like and I you know, dude, I've been there so many times with various things where I've spent hours and hours and hours on things and then to literally get a response going, No, nah, we preferred it before and you're like, Okay, cool no worries like you just got to take it on the chin that again kind of rela- relates back to the like experimentation thing it's like okay well let's try this like i you know i might state that something is going to be better if i do this i'm then send it to somebody and they go no it's not better it's you know music's opinion based so you know and if the general consensus is that you know they're right and i'm wrong then that's cool you have just got to like you got to you 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 just got to not have any ego about it i guess like or, or like or fatigue Really, you've got to be like, I can't. I, you know, the amount of time I spent on this—it's like, not something that, and he's just put it out of my mind. It never happened. It wasn't. You know, yeah. it, like, it's, it's gone. done now. You're not going to get it back. So, like, don't think on it anymore.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting how if you don't if you don't engage your ego and just um, let it go, you will forget that it even happened. Like, because the previous version will become the version you're working on. That idea you had is long gone. And uh, you don't even remember what it really sounded like after a while, like it's, if you just if you let it go properly, like it doesn't have to be difficult.
1: Well, I always find it hilarious like when i've um when I've mixed something and I've been focusing on in on my new shirt or like I've just been you know going crazy over a part that's been bugging me or whatever, and then you know I, I suddenly hear the song three months later, and I'm just not listening. Being critical, I'm just, I'm just like the songs there in the background. I'm like, oh, that that part doesn't even remotely. But I didn't even think about that part until after the song finished, and I remind my reminded myself because that song has conjured up the memories of the mix. Not because it was, and I'm not, you know, I I, that happens so often that it's like you've got to be able to, you've got to be able to consume music. I think. production and, and mixing particularly you've got to be able to consume music like the consumer like people don't, you know people don't, aren't going to listen to to records in the way that you listen to them that doesn't mean it's not your responsibility to like concern yourself with it being the best it can be and question everything but like when people hear that song the majority of people are going to be like like the song don't like the song that guitarist's cool that bassline's is wicked didn't like this, didn't like that, but they're not gonna they they're not gonna be like, oh, that Tom's got like this horrible resonance at you know six hundred hertz, and it's no, they're like, not. You know, like, nobody's gonna nobody's gonna think that.
0: No, man, I just I just went through that tracking EverTune guitars on the new Doth stuff. Like, so the thing is with EverTunes is they're not perfectly in tune. It's just they're better in tune. So instead of dealing with fifteen cent or twenty cent variations. You're looking at, like, three cents. But still, once you're dialed in, you start to hear that. And then everything starts to sound out of tune. And so, like, you get into this really weird headspace where you can hear two or three cents, and it makes you insane. And so you're hyper, hyper hyper-focused, like, with the strongest magnifying glass possible, your guitars, and going nuts, and then I won't hear it for a week, and then I won't, sounds perfectly fine, sounds great. I didn't notice any tuning issues whatsoever
1: it's yeah it's just funny how we can zero in like that isn't it
0: it's it's your focus you're zoomed in when you're in the studio
1: yeah and and it's also like i i spend most of my days sitting in front of a pair of ns tens, right like they're, they're not pleasant speakers to listen to they don't give you anything like they they're not that they, they don't you don't turn them on in the morning and go ah, oh, i'm listening to something that's that's really gratifying like that when something's wrong or like something jumps out like i because of I guess, and it's it's probably the same with anyone working on any pair of speakers that they've worked on for a long time. You, when something's wrong on them, it's just constantly like hitting you in the head Mm -hmm. with a hammer. Just going, "This isn't right." Yeah, and that's what I mean. That's what you want, of course. But like, just I just I find like regular ear breaks and just walking away very very regularly is the best way to combat that. And and also like you know, my assistant like. I will quite regularly, like he becomes my extra set of monitors in the room because I can I can be like focusing on something. I won't say anything to him about it. And then like I'll be like, is that snare bugging you? He's like, no. I'm like, Okay, well, it's not bugging you. You haven't even thought about it until like I said, mentioned it. And then if I have to actually describe what I'm talking about, like I know it's not a problem. I know it's just me zeroing in on it, you know. Like it's, it's good to like it's it's good to canvass opinions sometimes on these things because they can stop you spending hours and hours going down rabbit holes, basically.
0: However, though, sometimes you're right, and that's where the and that's where the head games come in because, it, like, for instance, like you just said about the vocal cleaning up the vocal and losing the vibe where it's objectively better, but it's worse. Like this just had this issue with pre-pro tracks. I'm wondering if you've had this where, so I had these pre-pro tracks for these clean guitars. Well, I pre-pro for everything, but the clean guitars specifically, they're not perfect, but they were perfect for the part, I guess. I recorded them at the exact right tempo when I wrote them. But then in the studio, we redid them like higher quality, like more attention to all the details. and they were And they were objectively better better performed, better sounding, better, uh, just better. Like it's just, if there was a test, they would get a higher grade. Right. But uh, not better feeling and not better in the song. But then the question becomes, do I have demo-itis or am I right that the demo is actually better? So have you ever had that type of um, second guessing where it's like, I think this is better, or am I just being crazy right now?
1: That must be harder, like when it's something that you've written and you're playing. That's like an extra level to it.
0: Or maybe not, though, because I know what it's supposed to be.
1: But like sometimes I think like you know what it's supposed to be, but then you you do have to trust the feel of something. I I would always trust the feel of something. I mean, like a really good example, and I've had this happen maybe I don't know three or four times where like a, um the a song's been cut in a writing session, very, very basically. And a scratch vocal has been recorded when an artist is not thinking about it, just relaxed, having a good time, really just like feeling the song. And it's been recorded on like an SM7B in a room with people making noise, with like shitty noise all over it but there's something about that take that's great. Then it's gone off, the song's gone off and been produced and worked on and multiple versions of it have been created. You know, along the way it's been sped up 5 BPM and so that vocal has, you know, been pushed and pulled about and it's been sped up. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's, you know, like crazy kind of aliasing going on by this point. The vocal, like the vocal, you are limited to what you can do with that vocal. Like there's, but there's still something magic about it. And then... Everyone knows that, like, this has happened to the vocal. So it's like, let's recut the vocal. And nine times out of 10, that demo vocal stays because there's a feeling in it. And it's like, it's, it can even it can go through that process of being pushed and pulled about, run through like CLA Vox five times, you know, pitched up, you know, sped up, whatever. But there's still some magic in that original capture. You can't recreate, yeah. Or you can recreate it, but it's it then just sounds like a bad imitation of what it should be, if that makes sense. So
0: then now the mixed students get it, and they're like, "Why do I hear problems?" It's like you don't know. You weren't there. You don't know why you, why you're hearing aliasing or. Artifacts. It could be exactly what you just said, because I actually that was one of the reasons for redoing some pre pro. And I've experienced this in the studio too with other artists, is uh engineer wanted to redo it because I had time stretched things trying to find the right tempo. And there were artifacts in the DIs. That's fair enough. But if the proper one doesn't feel better, then who gives a shit at the end of the day.
1: Yeah it doesn't it, it really doesn't matter it's like it's, it, it's it's that's also your job like when it comes to mixing if you'll send something that's you know like that like you've just got to make it the best version of what it can be and like sometimes the answer isn't like cleaning it up and then you know slamming it through whatever compressor and EQ it's just really it's really about like okay let's start with like let's just start with it raw balance it in and then you know and then work out what can we do to to fix it for like not fix it but like make it um again make it more of what it is make it enhance the feeling of it you know like what can we what can we do to it to 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 enhance what they like about that in a positive way
0: hey everybody if you're enjoying this podcast and you should know that it's brought to you by urm academy urm academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration ...and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lama God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix a song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics. As well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Wait, are you gaming on a Chromebook? (laughs) Yeah, it's got a high-res 120 hertz display, plus this killer RGB keyboard, and I can access thousands of games anytime, anywhere. Stop playing. What? Get out of here. Huh? Yeah. I want you to stop playing and get out of here so I can game on that Chromebook. Got it. it Discover the ultimate cloud gaming machine, a new kind of Chromebook. ABC Friday It just takes one great idea to change your life Shark Tank returns for its 15th season I didn't know I was going to cry right now With new guest sharks Jason Blum of Blumhouse Michael Rubin of Fanatics And Candace Nelson of Sprinkles Cupcakes I'm going to make you an offer On a scale of 1 to 10 I've never seen anything like this on Shark Tank This season is a 15 I totally believe in you Shark Tank premieres Friday on ABC and stream on Hulu out of curiosity, since I know that you're into metal and a whole lot of people who listen to this are into metal, what I'm curious about is uh, what is the big challenge in mixing pop versus metal? And metal, obviously, it's carving space, like when you have none. Like, is make it how to make something that should not work in the real world work awesome that's I think that's the number one challenge in metal mixing but in pop you have good arrangements and great sounds so but I know it's not easy so I'm wondering what the challenges are as opposed to with metal
1: the challenge that we all have when you're coming into a project as a, a separate Entity as a mixer, you know, you're dealing with what's been done before, and the biggest thing that I find is that, you know, we quite more often than not, productions come in and like what people have been listening to and where production mixes have got to. You know, they're good, they sound good, but they're also slammed, super loud. So it's like, okay, well, we haven't got headroom. Like there's certain things that when you do that to a track, that you you basically cement in certain certain things, like whether it's like the level of the bass or like just, you know, just a general RMS of like a record, the, you know, how loud things are versus everything else. Like I think one of the challenges is how do you make it better without, you know, you haven't got the room to turn everything up. It's a, it is about carving space. It is, And it's not always about pushing through. It's, it's, it's a, that same principle is there. It's like how does everything sit and work and like for work together and, and not get in each other's way. But I mean, I think with metal, and I mean, like, I'm no metal mixer, that's not like that's not something that I would ever profess to have mass expertise on. But I definitely think it's like, when you're, you're dealing with, with metal, I think there's a lot more broadband stuff going on. Like, guitars are fucking hard to mix. Like, rhythm guitars are hard to mix. Like, to create space when you have got all of that frequency information going on, that is tough like that's really tough i think and whereas in pop we do have i mean pop's constantly changing it's not like i mean it's not it's not a static entity in any respect i think you know y- you look at different time periods and the sonics of, of the music is uh, sometimes really bright sometimes really dark sometimes there's a lot of focus on 808s being the you know soup de jour or whatever but like it's and sometimes it's sometimes it's you know, some other sonic palettes, so it's changing all the time. But there, there does tend to be a bit more space than I would say with like metal records. In my experience of it, you're not necessarily le- dealing with something that's quite as relentless in terms of what's going on all the time. Does that make sense? I mean, you you, you know a lot more about the metal world than I do.
0: It's interesting to me with pop how it's almost like different parts of a song are almost like different scenes in a in a movie. Like,
1: I mean, that's how I think about music.
0: So getting those to work together, I think, seems, seems to me like one of the bigger challenges, but I don't know, maybe it's not.
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's about making sure the flow and transition is, is like evident particularly again like living in, in in the world where like we're not when we're, we're not set up for like the massive dynamic shifts that you would you would have had 20 30 years ago like it's not always when a chorus steps in it has to step in but it's not it's not suddenly jumping up in like level it's it's jumping up in terms of like what's going on parts parts wise like we're not we're like how are we going to and you know maybe we're, we're using width rather than the volume to accent to change i would say when i'm talking about like transitions to from section to section i think like the journey of records is the important thing with with pop music is like if you've got three minutes or two minutes 30 now like everything seemed to just get shorter and shorter you want people to Go on that journey and then want to go straight back to the beginning. Yeah, and, and and hit play again. So it's like I've and and that's all dependent on the type of record. Like if I get a if I get a record that's really, you know, upbeat and has got a lot of like tempo to it, like I just I, I just want it to hit as hard as possible. Like I want the drums to bounce. I want as much thwack as possible so that it enhances that energy. So that when you get to the end, you just want to go back to the beginning again and, and have some more of that hype, if that makes sense. I don't know if that does make sense, but yeah, (laughs)
0: yeah. That does make perfect sense. How did you get to the point where you were no longer working with, uh, you know, just locals? Like, how did you get to the point where you were, where people were coming to you, but they were people in the actual record industry? I'm sure it wasn't just one thing that happened, but what do you what do you think was the big turning point? There had to be something that was a big turning point.
1: The biggest thing was definitely um, in terms of getting me out of just doing local bands and local artists was was definitely going to work for Spike Stent as his assistant um, because it was like it was a huge education. It was a you know a amazing stressful busy time of my life where I learned a lot I also just had exposure to understanding how like how you how records are made in 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 that world and then really like building I guess like getting having people come to me it was like it sort of happened organically out of out of necessity as much as anything else because you know I set up the ranch production house with Neil Kennedy in 2008 and then Lewis John's, who I know, you know, like came on board engineering out of there. And both those guys are super, like, you know, they're, they're just they're insanely good engineers, super talented. I learned, I still do learn a lot from them. If I, if I, if I want an opinion on a piece of gear or like, or a mic or something, they're the first people I'd, I'd give a call. And, but they were very much focused on working in the genres that they worked in. And I think I'd kind of fallen out of love with that style of music by the time I was like, at that point in my life, I guess. And like I was listening to a lot more electronic music. I was listening to a lot more pop music, a lot more like kind of avant-garde stuff that I'd, I'd never really listened to when I was younger. The job with Spike came along at kind of the right time for me to to go, okay, well, he's somebody that I really look up to and he works on, he, he, he's not pigeonholed by genre he works in such a like wide range of genres which is exactly what I wanted from my own career I was like this is this is somebody I could really learn something from and get a real you know like sense of you know just a completely different understanding of mixing because up until that point really I'd, I like I don't mean, know I shit I didn't know what I was doing really like I'd, I'd 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 fuck up my productions by mixing them a lot of the time to be quite honest with you because I would just do too much I wouldn't listen to where I'd got to with the band or an artist. I'd like, and then I didn't go right mixing. I'm going to completely change everything. And it's like that's not that's not the way to go. Like we spent weeks or a few days making a record, and they they're happy with where it's at. So we need to we we need to expand on that. Like again, going back to what I was saying, it just like I was just kind of not playing the role. My role as producer and mixer, particularly while I was producing, and then not mixing the record to where. We wanted stuff, to where, where the artist did want this stuff to be, or probably I had in my initial thought process, if that makes sense.
0: Totally. For people who want to work with signed artists, there's basically two paths. And one is either you find a way to work for someone who is working with the types of artists you want to work with, and you work for them. You learn how it's done. You learn who's in that world. You basically insert yourself in that world, make yourself valuable, or some band that you worked with becomes successful and people start coming to you because of what you did with them and you grow together. Yeah. Those are basically the two paths I've seen that are the most common.
1: Yeah, you do you're 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 definitely right there. That there is like that that is kind of the pathways that you can go down. And like I think the nature of assisting and those guys that work in studios as runners and as assistant engineers, those guys have a work ethic built into them like i think before working for for Spike, my work ethic was good but it wasn't as good as it is now because like i wanted that job so bad i was like i'm gonna do the best i can i was like i'm available whenever i'm needed i'll do whatever has got to be done and like most people i know that are lucky enough and fortunate enough to have those opportunities in big the few big studios that remain today like they have to have that that work ethic because it's very much dog eat dog you've got to be the best you can be and that's when any chance you those are the situations where you get the chance to like showcase what you can do which can lead to more opportunities I guess
0: yeah totally I mean how else would you get those opportunities or how else would you refine yourself to be at that level I think every once in a while you'll find some genius from the middle of nowhere who figures it all out on their own but uh, that's super rare Super, super rare. Like most of the time you need a mentor or you need to like, you need to be taught how things are done or else it's going to take you way too long to figure it out. Like, that's why it's so great to have someone like Spike. Most most people do get a mentor.
1: I don't know if about you, but do do you find like you like? I mean, I find like I collect mentors yes. over over the years. Like I find, I, and collaborations just so important. Like you know, in the sense of like learning from people, there's nothing better than collaborating with people. And the sooner, like I think it's it is something that does happen with age to an extent, but the sooner you can drop, like, the concept of being an island and being, like, you know, I'm going to... Like, a collaborative process is so much better than trying to do things in isolation because you will learn so much quicker. Um, and, I mean, like, the, working, like a, you know, working with Neil and Lewis, I just seeing the techniques that they use to do certain things and just being able to borrow them and reinterpret them into, like, you know, my own workflow when I was at the ranch and the same with Spike and the same with, like, going back to... When I first worked in studios, the first guys I ever worked with, like those, and guitarists that like I looked up to in local bands, all of them have been mentors to me in some way because I've just taken something. From some information from them, and it's it's helped me to step on, move on to the next step. And it's like, whilst you know, it's it's great that that we have so many resources these days to lean on for information, but I do think like there is nothing better than working with other people, you know, in the flesh and learning. Like you can't. you you can't change. That. I mean, like you can you can watch a YouTube video on like what happens if you you know change mic placement in this way or that way. But like actually being in the room and doing it and like feel, like seeing like the the effect of it has and like hearing the effect it has like things like that are just there. They're really visceral, like, you know, they just, if you can get tactile with that world, it just imparts itself into you much quicker, and I think, and and cements itself much better than
0: anything else. I mean, you have to do it in real life. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: That's the thing that that kind of blows my mind. Like, it was only, the last time I was, like, recording, like, a metal-type band, I guess, was probably, like, 2012, I guess, 2011, something like that. And, like, I was kind of blown away that, like, everything was brought in... to to like guide track wise was like everything was done in like some guitar midi program
0: oh guitar pro
1: that was it, guitar pro yeah and then like the drummer had kind of he hadn't programmed his midi tracks and like we like the the whole thing was just like you've written this this record that's not bad in any respect but you guys can't actually play
0: ah yeah 2012 plus a lot of other things from that era stupidities from that era like is what led to me starting urm guitar pro it's actually a great tool if like for instance you write something in order to document it because just recording it that's not enough i think because you might play it differently like if you want to document exactly how to play it after you've written it and actually played it guitar pro is great especially if you want someone else in the band to learn it Uh, too. Like, there's all these great uses for it, but I noticed that a lot of bands would write in Guitar Pro without ever checking if it was playable, and that is just a disaster.
1: (laughs) I just, I remember, like, our control room was off to one side, we had no line of sight to the live room. The drummer had, like, set up this pretty, like, pretty standard kit, nothing particularly crazy about it but i do remember he had like zed custom symbols and thinking i hope he's not going to hit those too loud because i was just they were always like super super loud whenever like i tracked them i was like that was my only thought was like i hope he's not going to like wail them too hard like let's just let's see how he plays and i remember like hitting hitting record and i honestly thought he'd like fallen over into the drum kit i was like i stopped him and said like, are you okay he was like yeah why did you stop and i was like oh okay You can't play either, so like at that point, it's like okay, well, let's program the drums. Let's have you play cymbals over the top and like over the top of programmed drums. And then the guitar pro stuff, you just kind of like just battling through, trying to get people to give you something that's like a usable take. And it's you know, yeah, that definitely, I can see how that would uh, that would definitely be an inspiration to to kickstart education. That was bleak that experience, to say the least.
0: It was that, and because I could see that. Home recording was starting to take off little by little. I could tell that it was about to explode. And coming into the studio, that was the early days of bands no longer coming in for a whole record, just coming in for drums, tracking all the guitars, maybe vocals themselves, then coming back in for a mix. And the shit they were giving us was so bad. Like, I'm not talking about on the level of, oh, yeah, there's some problems. You need to fix them. Like we were discussing earlier. It was just, Straight up shit. Yeah, I just felt like someone needed to show these people how to not fuck it up and how to do this.
1: <laughs> I'm kind of imagining that these like um, these kind of things that, that you were getting were like a uh, like clipped, like asking people to take DIs and then them giving you like super clipped DIs and just like that that kind of thing.
0: And not in a good way.
1: No, no. Like I just. Yeah, I, I can. I can well imagine. It's amazing how many things can like go wrong between two stages that you're not involved in. You know, like to, to like if you let people go away and do do their own thing, or, or you know they insist on going away and doing their own thing. It's like if you don't have the knowledge, and that's what's so important to learn, like just the basics of signal flow. Like I think it's just, it's it's essential like to to be able to record things properly. So yeah, I mean, it's a a good job that they're out there now, those resources for sure.
0: Totally. Well, Jeff, I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to uh, thank you for taking the time to hang out. It's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been fun. All right then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at AL Levy URM audio at URM Academy. And of course, Tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at at al.urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y, And use the subject line, answer me, AL. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.